Well, the day was hot and salty. My seven-year-old cheeks were streaming with grit and sweat from a long day of play in the field behind our house. Now, it was the first time I can actually remember being in a house. We had spent our early years homeless on the streets of Detroit, living in abandoned buildings and cars, but my parents had managed to get enough money together to rent what my brothers and I have now come to refer to as the farmhouse. It's just a rundown house at the end of a rundown street with a dilapidated barn on the side, but it had a, a field out back. And that field had remnants of a time gone by where the previous occupants grew things like corn and potatoes, some of which were beginning to poke up on that day of days. And we spent all day playing in that ordinary field, in that ordinary barn, throwing ordinary potatoes and mud at one another all the way until dusk. And that's when it happened. In the distance, I could hear the strange hum, the buzz, the click of an insect that I've now come to know as a cicada bug. Reddish blue sky filled with stars. It seemed as if the whole world came to a holy hush for a moment of magic. And then there they were, hovering above the mud and the corn, blips of green. Spackles of light. Not knowing what I was seeing, but determined to find out, I grabbed a, a mason jar from the barn and ran into that field of mud to capture light in a bottle. And it wasn't hard. Within a few minutes, I had about a dozen or so phosphorus-filled bugs with what I called butts of light. And I took that mason jar into the house. And I said, Mom, our house is filled with magic. Look with these bugs with butts of light. And with a laugh, my mom began to explain the science behind a, a lightning bug or a firefly. But I want you to know that no matter how reasonable or scientific or rational her explanation was, to me at the age of seven, I was sure of one thing, and that is I was living in a house of magic. 43 years later now to this day, whenever I stand on the edge of a field, a forest in mid-July, as I watch that field flicker into an extraordinary stage of wonder, my heart and mind, my soul, are brought back to that point in my childhood when I was sure the world was filled with magic. You know, fireflies are so fantastical to me that I have a hard time believing they're just a natural, normal part of the world in which we live. They're almost like an artifact from another time, another place. They're, they carry light from another world. There's just something amazing about the extraordinary things of life, isn't there? The extraordinary things of life just fill our hearts with joy and wonder. They cause us to dream a different kind of dream. Now, I want to be honest as we start our evening here together that, you know, the, the reality is that there are lots of things that are ordinary that for us, we, we enjoy those kinds of things. We like ordinary gas in our cars, for instance. As a guy who's on Delta planes almost every single week, I want everything to be about as ordinary as possible. I don't want any extraordinary activity on the airplanes that I'm flying on. We're from the Detroit area where we like all kinds of ordinary things, like watching the Detroit Lions lose every single Thanksgiving, right? We like all kinds of ordinary things. But the extraordinary things. The word extraordinary simply means beyond what is usual, beyond what is traditional, beyond what is established. And the extraordinary things fill our hearts with joy. They cause us to reach for a better tomorrow. The extraordinary things call us forward. And so I want to talk to you about some extraordinary things, some amazing ideas, in fact, firefly ideas that are so powerful that if you would allow them to take root in your hearts tonight, you would not only discover your best life, you would discover the capacity to change the world around you, to light up the darkness, those muddy fields of forgotten lives and broken dreams,
And I want you to see this in the Bible here tonight. The first principle is this, that experiencing the extraordinary grows a joy-filled amazement in our lives. I want you to know what I, under, what I mean by this. When you have an encounter with something that's truly beautiful, something that's truly extraordinary, the natural normal response is to stand in awe, to stand in a place of wonder and excitement. And I believe that as women and men of God, we can actually cultivate a heart posture that comes to assume the extraordinary things of life. It comes to look for the magical things of God's world. And now I want you to see this principle at work in one of the many ordinary days of the life of Jesus. Because in reality, the life of Jesus was filled with all kinds of ordinary people and ordinary things and ordinary moments that he chose to choose, he chose to transform into extraordinary, right? Now I want you to see this in one of the early days of Jesus' ministry. So this is before he went live. He's going from village to village and he's looking for women and men who will follow him into an extraordinary life that the Bible calls discipleship. Now we've made that word overly religious in our time, right? But in Jesus' day, to be a disciple simply meant that you were patterning yourself after the expertise of somebody further along in an industry. You could be a disciple of a mason, a jeweler, a carpenter. And we have the same concept here today, don't we? We call them interns. And you can be an intern in the medical community, an engineering firm, a law firm, right? And Jesus is going from village to village in this text that we're going to look at, looking for women and men who will be his disciples or his interns into an extraordinary story. And that's where we pick it up in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, I have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now this is the first story. This is the first blip of green that shows the watching world that within Jesus there is a light from another world. That there's something special, there's something perhaps even extraordinary and magical about Jesus. Again, Jesus is just about three days into this recruitment campaign. You have to understand, this is before LinkedIn and Uber, and so Jesus is just huffing it from village to village. He's just pounding the pavement, looking for women and men who will follow him into something beautiful, something extraordinary. And along the way, he and his disciples are invited to an ordinary wedding in his ordinary hometown. And that's where this extraordinary problem of running out of wine begins. Now, you have to understand why running out of wine is such a colossal fail in this day and age. It's not like it is in our day and age when we have these things called weddings that we call weddings that are like two to five hour ordeals on a Saturday. These are different, right? People would have come from far and wide. 
by foot, by animal. They would have been eating and drinking on the property, sleeping for days on end. This was a multi-day wedding festival. And in the middle of this festival, the groom who's responsible for the party runs out of the essential ingredient, and that's wine. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. We know a couple of things about this wedding. First of all, it's a large wedding, and we know that because there are stone jars at the front of the wedding capable of holding about 150 to 180 gallons of water used for something called the ritual purification of the Jews. And so when you'd come to the wedding, you wouldn't just merely wash your hands and feet for sanitation purposes. A Jewish tradition tells us that each person, when they would come to an event like this, they would take about an eggshell to two eggshells worth of water and they would swish it back and forth between the palms of their hands as a way to symbolize that they are coming into this holy, solemn assembly. We also know it's a family wedding. And we know this because Mary is working the wedding. She has authority over the servants. She has a sense of responsibility over the problem. And as they run out of wine, her solution is simple. I'll just get my son Jesus to handle it. And it's just every mother's inclination. I'll just get my boy to handle it. Right? And so this is a large family wedding. But you have to know that for the groom and his family and even this couple to run out of wine at a multi-day wedding festival would have been a mark of shame. It would have shown a lack of preparation, a lack of concern for guests that had come so far to celebrate this day of days, this special day. Now, how many of you are married? Let me see your hands. Now, how many of you want to be married? You're swiping left. You're, I see you. You're swiping left. But one day you'll swipe right. And I want you to know, here's some marital advice. When you marry a somebody, you don't marry an individual. You marry a story. You marry a family. You marry hopes and dreams and traditions and expectations. And that's what this guy is marrying into. Now, I married into a story and a half. I married into a very large family. Every Sunday, there's 20, 28 people at grandma and grandpa's table. It's like a mini Thanksgiving. And when I first married into this family, I had no idea how this day of days was supposed to go. And so I show up and we're eating and feasting. And afterwards, the kids go out back to fight and play, usually a combination of the two. And the parents and the, fam the adults go into the family room to do something that white people call visiting. Now, the lights are kind of bright. So I don't know if there are any white people out there, but if there are, you should know what I'm talking about. It grows kind of this cultural phenomenon, grows out of upper Midwest farming community culture, right? And the idea is you get together in a living room, a family room, some kind of public setting, and you talk about absolutely nothing. <laughs> now the problem as an African-American marrying into this clan, so to speak, is that no one gave me the tutorial, the primer, the 101 on white people visiting. I missed the class. And so I'm sitting there in this first experience, not knowing what's going on, feeling very awkward, the silence, the stares before grandma spoke up first. And she said, it looks like it's going to be a cold winter, according to the farmer's almanac. I said, the farmer's, we have the weather channel. We don't need the farmer's almanac, right? I'm just very concerned here. And I don't know where this is going. And grandpa then pipes in. He says, it doesn't look like the tiger is going to make it to the postseason playoffs. Now, one thing you should know about me is that I'm, a, I'm an idea guy. I have a degree in philosophy from the University of Michigan, Go Blue. I have a degree from Florida Theological Seminary, so I kind of, I live in my head. I'm an intellectual. And I, this idea of small talk and visiting makes me incredibly uncomfortable. It's suspicious. I don't trust people who want to talk about the weather and the tigers. And so this first experience, I said, you know, I'm going to up the visiting game. And so I threw in a real zinger to get things going. And I said, don't you think the forces of globalization are at play that are leading to a decline in productivity and yet an increase in cost? And you would have thought I shot grandma, right? <laughs> the look of concern, panic. 
right? I didn't know that as a, a new person to the family, I should have been out back fighting with the kids. I didn't know that grandma and grandpa set the agenda and you never talk about, you know, financial, global, for it might set off an irreversible chain of uncomfortability the family will never recover from. Okay? And I looked terribly bad week in and week out until I stopped and I listened and I learned. And over the course of the years, I have learned the art of white people visiting. In fact, a few weeks ago, I actually threw in, I think there's a sale of truck tires down at the Costco, right? So now I can visit with the best of them, right? And this groom is marrying into a family just like that. Hopes and dreams and expectations and traditions. And how long had they been dreaming of their little girl's day of days? And in the center of this multi-day wedding festival, he runs out of the essential ingredient, and that's wine. The second thing that we need to understand about wine is that wine is actually more important in the Bible than it is in our day and age. It's a multi-billion dollar global industry but a glass of wine in the story of God stands at the very center of everything that God desires for humanity. A single glass of wine represents God's great desire to gather around the family table every tribe and tongue and language. In fact, Isaiah talks about this day of days, this great wedding day feast. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all of the peoples. A banquet of aged wine and the best of meats, the finest of wines. You see, wine is at the center of the wedding culture of Jesus' day, but it's also at the very center of the story of everything. In fact, as you know, as the night before Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his friends, and he lifted the glass of wine, and he said, I will never again drink the fruit of the vine until it has its ultimate meaning, its ultimate fulfillment in the great wedding feast that Isaiah is talking about here today. And so Jesus' solution is to transform the leftover religious water into the best wine ever. And that gets a response. Look at verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now this master of ceremonies is the one employee that's working for the groom. He knows all things weddings. He knows when the daddy-daughter dance is supposed to be, when the cutting of the cake is supposed to be. I imagine him with a long flowing scarf and matching boots. Everything would have been fabulous and on time, on cue, right? And he knows everything. And so as he tastes this extraordinary wine in the middle of the wedding festival, he knows this isn't normal. Everybody starts with the good wine, and then they bring the yellowtail and the Boone's Farm and the Mag Dog 2020 after people can't tell the difference. Now, as important as norms and traditions are for us, and they are important, for some families, they're more important than others. What it actually means to be an intern of Jesus means that you live above those things, that you adopt a new normal, that you enter into a different kind of story. I think it's incredibly important that as Jesus coming out sign, his first sign, he chooses at an unnamed couple to transform ordinary religious water, even better, leftover religious water into the most extraordinary wine ever. We get at least three lessons from that. First of all, the story of God is ultimately the story of celebration. The story of God puts joy before religion and the story of God puts uh, belonging before tradition as well. When we come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we live above the rules and the expectations. We live into a different kind of story. We live a different kind of story as followers of Jesus. Following Jesus is not about religious expectations. 
It's about a relationship with him. And I believe what God wants so much for us is with childlike faith for us to pick up our mason jars of faith and to run as fast as we can into a world of forgotten dreams and broken lives, into a world of mud and darkness with a supernatural light that can literally transform the communities and the world in which we live. And that leads us to our second principle that experiencing the extraordinary will point you to your ultimate purpose in life. Let me tell you what I mean. Jesus had just performed something incredible, a sign. Now, signs are different than miracles. Jesus did a lot of miracles. He walked on water and cast out demons and raised the dead. But none of those fantastical feats were chosen to be his coming out sign. Now, a sign is a symbolic wonder. It paints a bigger picture. It helps us to see our place in God's great story. And this is a big one because it's his first one. Right? In the story of Jesus, as he performs these signs, we see our purpose in life. We see our entry point into the great kingdom of God. Now, let me tell you what this means for you here tonight. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why am I here? What's it all about? Where is it all heading? What kind of legacy am I going to lead? What kind of impact am I going to have on the world? Those are human questions that I believe every woman, every man, at some point in their lives ask. And perhaps tonight you're asking that question of yourself. Maybe you're in a place of loneliness, of despair. Maybe you're in a place of struggle or sickness or relational strain. And you're asking that question in a whole new way. I want you to know that becoming an intern or a disciple of Jesus isn't about joining a religious order. It's about joining a story. It's about joining a people. It's about becoming a part of something bigger than yourself, something beautiful and extraordinary. Part of the reason why Jesus chose to take the leftover religious water to transform into extraordinary wine is because that's exactly what he does with people. It's exactly what he does with people. Following Jesus is about transformation. He takes our broken places, our leftover parts. He takes the forgotten parts, and he causes it to be like, the best wine ever. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. It's not that we, our backgrounds are erased or forgotten. They're transformed. They're set on their head. In fact, you know, you could have asked the question, well, couldn't have Jesus just taken some wine and made more wine? Now, next week, we'll look at the loaves and the fish, and that's exactly what he did. Jesus could have did that. He could have found a bottle of old, you know, yellowtail or mad dog out back and just made more wine. But instead, he transforms religious water into extraordinary wine. And I believe that's exactly what he wants to do with your life. That if you take the step into being an intern of Jesus, he will take your broken parts, your forgotten parts, your lost hope, the things that you're ashamed of, and he will cause them to shine bright, to be transformed for his purposes. And that leads us to our final and third principle, that experiencing the extraordinary will draw you personally into the story of God. Let me tell you what I mean. When you choose to believe again, you re-embrace that inner child, that place inside of you that believes that the world is filled with magic. You re-embrace what it actually means to believe that God can do something with the leftover things in your life. And you start a different story. When we choose to follow Jesus, we join thousands, perhaps even millions of people over the last 2,000 years that have chosen to take the very first step into an eternal story that Christians call mission. We become active in God's kingdom. We do crazy things that, are, that require risk, that stand the world's wisdom on its head, and we follow Jesus who can change the world. Let me show you how this works. In verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. Now listen, and revealed his glory, 
and his disciples believed him. Signs of Jesus reveal the glory of Jesus. You say, what's the glory of Jesus? It's kind of mysterious. The glory of Jesus is everything that is heavenly. It's everything that is full of bright light. It's Jesus unplugged. It's Jesus unfiltered. It's Jesus full on display. You know, something interesting I didn't realize about fireflies until just recently is that they largely, they don't exist west of Kansas. They need humid conditions to sustain colonies of fireflies. I don't know if you knew that. And so the kind of weather that we're having outside, which is my love language, 95 degrees with super high humidity, I'm living my best life right now. And that's the kind of atmosphere that fireflies need as well. They need that kind of atmosphere. So try to explain a firefly to somebody who grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, or Los Angeles, California. You can show them pictures or YouTube loops, but I heard just no words for what you would feel inside your heart when you stand in that field, that forest edge, set to the sound of cicadas under the canopy of stars, and you watch an ordinary field flicker green at night. There are no words. That's what the glory of Jesus is like. There are no words. You have to step into the extraordinary power of Jesus. Throughout the life of Jesus, he always talked about one great sign that would lead people from all over the world to him through his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that is the supernatural light that you get to carry with inside of you, a light that transforms the world around you. The interns of Jesus are nothing more than ordinary women and men who have made a decision to step into darkness with an otherworldly light. For about 17 years, I did uh, a large, very large anti-trafficking work all across the United States, working with attorney general's offices in the U.S. House and Fortune 50 companies and really hundreds of thousands of citizens all over the United States. And our goal was to pass better laws and to create sustainable resources that would reproduce themselves to empower NGOs who are on the front lines of caring for surviving, uh, survivors of human trafficking. And during that season of my ministry, uh, my, my, my campaigns took me to Cambodia, which is really one of the worst places for human trafficking. And I spent a significant amount of time in Phnom Penh, the capital there, and they had set up a bunch of uh, meetings for me while I was there. And I was meeting with generals and presidents of the university. I thought, they, I think they think I'm somebody else, but I didn't tell them that at the time. But everybody seemed to have a very important title. But I want to tell you the most extraordinary person that I met while I was in Cambodia was a guy named D. Now, for security reasons, I'm just going to refer to him as D. And Dee in the anti-trafficking space is a legend, like an epic legend. His intelligence and undercover work has led to the rescue of hundreds of young children who have been sold into brothels, six, eight, ten-year-old children who are living lives of sexual slavery. And I had known about his work before I came there, and so I just made it a point that I had to see Dee. Now, the morning that I met him, I was actually in a militarized compound meeting with about 180 children who had been rescued from brothels. And many of these kids were 8, 10, 12 years old, and they were full of bright smiles, with pressed uniforms, faces full of joy. And that will show you, no matter how far you've gone in this world, no matter what kind of brokenness you've endured, because these children were cared for by people who loved them in the name of the Lord, their lives had been transformed. They had been restored. In their broken places and their shame, they were living a new story because of Jesus Christ. And after I got done meeting with them and heard many of their stories, I jumped on a tuk-tuk, a little motorized scooter, and I made my way across town to meet Dee. 
And Dee was in this kind of secret, behind a gate, militarized compound, and they brought me into some secret room with the lights off, and then they bring Dee in with some sunglasses on. I thought, wow, this is, this is some 007 stuff right here, sunglasses in a dark room. But, and I was just kind of like awestruck, kind of like fangirling, and I'm like, I just, you know, I just I want to thank you for the word. And I just kind of stumbling over my words. And I'll never forget Dee's response. He said, it's an honor to do what I do for Jesus. It's an honor to do what I do for Jesus. Now, the light that D has inside of him is shining extra bright, not because he's in Cambodia, not because he has a different Jesus than you and I have, but because he's allowed his light to shine bright in a place of great darkness. Have you ever seen a firefly in the daytime? You probably have, and you might not have known what you were looking at. It looked like a box elder beetle, some kind of regular old beetle, right? It isn't until the darkness comes in a certain part of the country for a certain season that the glory of the firefly is seen. And that's exactly how the light of Christ works. That as we allow our light to shine bright in places of darkness, in places of mud and corn, of forgotten people and broken dreams, the light of Jesus transforms people's lives and the communities that we seek to touch. Part of my great fear for the American church is that we've grown so comfortable to being a firefly in the daytime, we prefer it that way. We go into any room in our home and we turn on the spigot and we can get drinking water, clean drinking water right in the comfort of our own home. We don't operate under persecution yet. We have it pretty good. You can go to your mailbox, you probably did, and you open the mailbox and there's your Coles cash. How we love our Coles cash, right? Here's a newsflash, Kensington. You don't need Coles cash. It's always on sale all the time, right? But life is working pretty good for us. But that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus might mean you go across the street with that angry neighbor who's always parking a little bit on your lawn going down the aisle to the cubicle down where the person is breathing out profanities. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go across the seas into brothels, but I can guarantee you if you choose to follow Jesus, he will take you into places where there is great darkness, where there is great need, and that is where your light will shine bright. And here's the great news. It's also your best life. Your best life is found when you follow Jesus into places where he is needed most. So how do we apply this to our lives tonight? Be a firefly in the darkness. Choose to embrace complexity. Choose to embrace the mess and the darkness around you because the world is in desperate, desperate need of the light of Jesus. This might have been Jesus' first sign, but it was not his last. In fact, he saved the best for last. Jesus always talked about one great sign that was so powerful that anyone anywhere could look up and by seeing this sign, could choose to believe and become born again. He always talked about his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection as the one great sign that would solve all of humanity's problems, that would restore our souls and restore ourselves and reignite our, our relationship with God. The death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection is what God has given us to shine bright. In Mark chapter 15, we read this about his death on the cross. It says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, as Jesus died on the cross, he died in the path of totality as darkness and that eclipse struck the land. Jesus suffered and bled on the cross to take away our sin. 
Now, for a Roman soldier, glory was the greatest ideal that one could strive for. To die a glorious death was the greatest death that a Roman soldier could ever have hoped for, which is why we make sense of these words. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, listen now, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The one person who was in charge of executing Jesus, when he looked up and saw the sign, he said, surely this is the son of God. Another account said, this man has no sin. Right? The glory of Jesus is found in his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. In the story of God, we learn that each of us in this auditorium has a soul sickness. We have a disease that the Bible calls sin. And sin separates us from a holy God. But the great news is that Jesus stepped in and took the penalty for us on the cross. That through the power of his resurrection, we can be reignited. We can be, we can be born again into a relationship with God through what he's done on the cross. And you ready for it? The great firefly moment that like a firefly in the night, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is alive. Now I want to ask you, will you choose to follow Jesus? Will you choose to be his intern? Will you carry this sign story of his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection into places of darkness? Or will you choose to hoard it for yourself? Will you choose to be a firefly in the daytime? Or will you choose to let your light shine bright so that others can look up and see the sign of Jesus. Throughout these Do Beautiful, Do Something Beautiful Saturdays, I want to challenge you to think about the difficult places, to think about the hard people, to think about those people who are walking in darkness and consider taking a step into their lives, taking a step into their world, to doing something beautiful, to letting your light shine bright. And I believe that if you will take Jesus up on his word, he will go before you, and you will oftentimes find that the work is already done, and you're stepping into what God has prepared for you. And you will see people respond. Now, you will also see the opposite. You will see people reject you and resist you. And that's also a promise from the word of God. But there's nothing more exciting, and there's no surer path to your best life than taking the risk to stepping into darkness and letting your light shine bright. Lord, I thank you for these women and men. Thank you, Lord, for every single mason jar in this auditorium. I thank you, Lord God, for those who are watching on the live stream, Lord God, who have the light of Christ within them. And I pray, Lord God, myself included, that you would cause our light to shine bright in places of darkness, of great need, that you would use what little we have, that you would multiply it to feed the many, and that we would see people come to know you as their Lord and their Savior. In Jesus' name. Yeah, you can clap even though he's not in the room. That was a great message. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. If you want, we have it in the lobby. We have his book, Do Something Beautiful. And, you know, as I listen to him and pick this up, it's, it's interesting. It doesn't say talk about something beautiful or pray about something beautiful or study something beautiful. What's it say? Do. Key word. That's what this whole message was leading us to as, as followers of Christ who have received the light of Jesus, go shine it in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, wherever it is. We can talk, we can sing all we want. Real worship isn't just singing songs, it's then living out the words we sing in life every minute of every single day. So what a message to inspire us to go. And so we're going to close 
for the final song, and we're going to take our offering at this moment as well. And I think the offering is a do-something beautiful moment. Think about it. When we give back to God, we're given in a place where we believe in the mission of that place and the community of that place. So we give, and all the money you give doesn't just stay here. It actually funds all the move-out stuff that we get to do to impact the world globally and locally. So some of you are new and you think uh, the only way to give is to put something in the pouch and some people do that, but most of our people give like that. Almost 80% give online and it's safe and secure. That's how I do it. And it is, it is doing something beautiful every time we give. So I invite you to join us and become a uh, beautiful giver as well. And then this song, let me tell you about this song. The chorus is perfect. As we get ready to leave here, it says this, make me a vessel, make me an offering Make me whatever you want me to be. It's really a prayer. God, I'm asking you to make me a vessel, to, to allow me to take steps this week to do something beautiful to shine your light through me. I'm asking you to make my life an offering. It's not about me. It's about giving away my life to others. And by the way, you want to find life? Give your, way, your life away and serving others, you'll find life. It doesn't make sense. It's like, wait, wait, wait. I, I need to grab it to find life. No, you need to let go, and you find life when you love and serve others by doing something beautiful. So I'm going to encourage you, just, you know, maybe if you, we just taught you this song last week for the first time, so it might be somewhat new. It's so beautiful. Listen to it for a second. You need to sit while the offering goes by uh, anyway, and then as you feel comfortable, stand up, and let's sing this sort of as a prayer and an anthem so that we can then go live these words, new wine.